the world entirely is at war. Troops waiting for the zero hour. This is D-Day. They got one. Veterans Chronicles. For the next hour, join host Gene Pell and an honored roster of heroic soldiers, sailors, and fighting aviators, recalling and retelling their personal stories from World War II a state of war. to the present day. Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. Now the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network present Veterans Chronicles with your host, Gene Pell. Welcome to this week's edition of Veterans Chronicles. I'm Gene Pell, and my guest this week is Alan Clark, the author of the book Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. Uh, Alan uh, served in uh, Vietnam. He was very seriously uh, wounded while uh, there uh, in uh, the United States Army. He's a graduate of the Military Academy at West Point. Uh, lost both legs uh, in his service in Vietnam and has traveled a remarkable road ever since then, uh, leading eventually t- through uh, great turmoil and trauma to great success. And it's a pleasure and honor, uh, Alan, to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Gene. It's my privilege and pleasure to be here with you. You're one of the rare people that I know, uh, because I count myself among them, that uh, it may not have been age eight, but I always knew what I wanted to do uh, from an early age, and you always wanted to be a soldier. I always did. You know, I was in uh, Japan with my father, who was in the Army of Occupation at age eight, when the communists came across the 38th parallel, and all the troops got on the trains. We used to go see them off, and I'd hear them talking when they came back, and Dad's best friend was killed at the Chosen Reservoir, and uh, that's all that I ever wanted to be. And you used to hang out uh, outside the PX and uh, try to, uh, even you had your pocket knife with you to get some combat badges off people or uh, regimental badges. I was a, I was an aggressive patch collector. <laughs> I, they never would obviously be carrying a, an extra patch when a soldier would come out of there from all the allied forces. We had about 16 countries involved on our side. I'd see a patch I didn't have in my collection. I'd ask them if they had an extra, and naturally they didn't. And I said, "Well, I have a I have a pocket knife." And amazingly enough, some of those some of those <laughs> wonderful young men cut their patch off for me. And you wanted to go to West Point all the time? All the time. Well, you know, probably very shortly after that, uh, in my patch collection, uh, I came up with a West Point patch and asked Dad about it, and he began to tell me about it, that it trained officers for the Army. And I said, well, that sounds like that's something that I ought to consider doing. So it was a very young age when I was dedicated, had a goal, and began studying very earnestly. But one of the themes of your book is... uh providential intervention almost, and uh, you make the point uh, early on that uh, there was that kind of intervention, in fact, in terms of your getting into the academy even. Oh, yes, I think so. Uh, There's always been, uh, I believe, the good Lord watching over me and blessing my life. I mean, I have attempted to, to merit the favor uh, as we call it, uh, grace, unmerited favor, and I uh, have had that many times. I um, Originally didn't have the good enough eyesight to go to the academy. And as I recollect, you know, sometimes we forget how things really happened and have an impression, but that the, that the eye standards were lowered the year that I needed to get in. And uh, also having the congressman give me a principal nomination and he was going to be a lame duck congressman. It was his last year. So I, I went in earlier than normal. Well, earlier is an understatement. I mean, you didn't even finish high school and you still went to West Point. Well, the congressman called me on Christmas Eve, said, Alan, I have a principal nomination. I said, Congressman, I, I don't want it till next year. He said, Alan, I'm a lame duck congressman. He says, why don't you take the exams, and if you pass, 
decide whether to go in early, and then if you don't pass, you've got experience uh, for you know for the next year. And so, Dad had been was an attorney, a licensed attorney in the army, and he uh, checked the regs, and the regs said regulations said that a West Point cadet should be a high school graduate. Didn't say had to be, and there's a big difference. So I entered as the youngest man in my class of 1963. You may have been one of the youngest entrants in a long time, as a matter of fact. Well, possibly. When you got there, uh, did it meet the expectations you had had for so many years? Well, you know, you, you never can know what to expect as a cadet or a midshipman at the service academies. Um, I, I've always said in my speeches that West Point's a good place to be from but not at, and I definitely didn't appre- appreciate being at there as a as a uh, plebe in Beast Barracks. My father had been transferred to Hawaii, and I had these these impressions of surfboarding and, you know, going out to the University of Hawaii or something and going to finish my senior year, and so that was tough on me. And candidly, I was, I was just about ready to resign as a Beast, Beast Barracks plebe. Mm-hmm. Decided not to because of the uh, the involvement and one of those providential things that a uh, first-classman named Nicky Rowe, who came to be a very a celebrated hero of this country, was my company commander. And providentially, his mother had known my mother with, you know, 760 new cadets and all these upperclassmen. Uh, he'd known my mother. They had known each other from McAllen, Texas, in the lower Rio Grande Valley. And so it was a personalized approach there by Nick to uh, ask me to consider staying in, that things got better with the academic year. And they did. Mm-hmm. So then you uh, graduated uh, your commission, and uh, off you go, and then you got married. Yes, and uh, the uh, the first wife was a wonderful woman, uh, just as is my current wife, Linda, and uh, that tells you that we didn't make it. Uh, she really uh, wanted to go back to North Dallas. She'd been an SMU, Southern Methodist University graduate, and liked the stable life without moving and uh, the maneuvers and the interruptions in the service and definitely the specter of Vietnam at that time in 64, 65, uh, reared its ugly head, and she wanted me to resign. And uh, I had a real agonizing decision to make to preserve my marriage or to or to go forward with the career I'd always wanted to have. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to go to Vietnam. No, I... Why did you? Well, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to be a general's aide and go to Korea, which would have been uh, an unaccompanied tour. <clears throat> and my wife wanted me to resign. I decided to resign. I could have gone to Korea, gotten my unaccompanied tour out of the way, come back and been out of the military, supposedly, and not go to Nam. But uh, that the Vietnam War was the defining time for all of us regular Army people, much less dedicated patriots in the military at the time. And I never felt that I could not go to the war, resign. And, and go to classmate reunions at West Point or see my classmates if I got out of going to the war. So I um, secretly, to her, uh, volunteered for Vietnam. And obviously, when you volunteer during a war, you typically go, and I did go. And you volunteered for a rather extraordinary assignment. Well, uh, in Vietnam, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of... Uh, accustomed to talking to people on airplanes that sit next to you. Well, one time going from Saigon to Trang, I talked to a lieutenant colonel who was a special forces commander of the of the special forces in the Central Highlands, and he told me he needed an S-2 officer at one of his B teams. So I said, well, maybe I can transfer in country. It happened very quickly. Transferred in. Didn't get my assignment to go up there. And after about a week, I went to this real grizzled old Master Sergeant said, what's going on? Why haven't I been assigned there and moved out? And he says, you've been reassigned to a, a covert operation. And so I had to find out about that, find out it was 
uh, espionage against Cambodia. It was Detachment B-57 Army Special Forces. We had a unilateral operation, meaning with no help from the South Vietnamese uh, forces, so only we knew about it, to collect intelligence out of Cambodia when it was a privileged sanctuary still. Well, you even had to get a new identity and a new name, right? I did. Um, I Well, I started out in the assignment just basically setting up the unit. I was the first officer assigned to it to my recollection, and then I debriefed uh, a Cambodian officer who had defected to the United States for a month, and he was later um, supposedly uh, killed by my replacement in my unit after I'd left the country, and then I worked with um, three Cambodian young men to be dropped off next to the border to go in through the jungle. Two two dropped out after that mission. They said it's too dangerous, so I took one and one more, trained them, set them up against the border, and then my CO, commanding officer, sent me to Docto Special Forces Camp um, beginning in March of 67. And I was there uh, up until June 17, 1967. Well, tell us what happened in June 1967 in Docto. <clears throat> well... Uh, special Forces camps are always out in the boondocks. I mean, you know, it's the original Indian country of the old cavalry post uh, era in our in our West, in our history. And Special Forces camps are very isolated. The whole idea is to have 12 or, or so Americans that go out in very isolated areas to help provide some kind of security to the local vil- villagers in the mountain yards and so forth. So we had this camp there. We were sending out patrols. I was in the camp. Uh, recruiting Montagnards to go back into Cambodia. So I was running intelligence nets under false name, uh, infantry brass, and uh, another name, a false name named Copley. And uh, the NVA, North Vietnamese Army troops, decided that they would take our camp. And so they started moving toward our camp, two ambushes nearby, about five miles away. And then the evening of the 16th, uh, we saw some activity across the river. And as it was, we thought... We thought they were just villagers from the nearby area, so we didn't call a strike in on it. And uh, the next morning at 4.30, uh, a mortar attack started. I had been... My commanding officer did not want me to be there and take the chance on being captured because uh, I knew a lot. I'd started the unit. I knew everybody in the unit. I knew where we all were. And so the enemy always gets it out of you when they capture you, of course, through torture. And so he was going to pick me up at 930. So I was five hours away from, quote, freedom and security to be out of the camp. I felt a little bit guilty about that, but the 173rd was going to come in and fight the enemy. So I said, okay, well, I'll go because you know, nothing's going to be happening here anyway. So I'm on the shift at 430 when a, when a heavy heavy mortar barrage started in the camp and well keep moving along with the story here you know i I was the american on duty between four and six and um you got hit i got hit mortar round dropped probably a foot and a half to my left rear and uh i fell forward i yelled out oh god i'm dead we just visited my wife and i just visited some marines down at camp allen um at norfolk and um the marine captain commander there was talking about Everybody yells out, for God or Mama, and I yelled out, oh, God, I'm dead, and just defined that I thought I was dead. Uh, two two very, very brave Army Special Forces sergeants came out from undercover and took me downstairs in a letter. Sergeant Jimmy Hill, uh, Army Special Forces combat medic, with whom I'm still in contact, and is an interesting part of my life, how we had closure a couple of years ago, and that saved me by getting morphine and plasma for me and began to treat me before the medevac. Well, we're going to pause right there, and uh, we'll come back and continue this fascinating uh, story with uh, Alan Clark, the author of Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior, after these messages. 
You're listening to Veterans Chronicles, presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network. Chronicles is presented by the American Veterans Center, an educational foundation dedicated toward preserving the legacy of America's servicemen and servicewomen of all generations. The center is home to two organizations, the World War II Veterans Committee and the National Vietnam Veterans Committee, each working to tell the stories of their respective veterans. In addition to this program, The American Veterans Center is also the primary sponsor of the National Memorial Day Parade, held annually in Washington, D.C. For more information on the American Veterans Center and its programs, visit the center's website at www.americanveteranscenter.org or call 703-302-1012, 703-302-1012. You're listening to Veterans Chronicles, presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network. Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Gene Pell. We're talking this week with Alan Clark, the author of Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. And, Alan, when we uh, paused for the break, uh, you had been uh, seriously injured. You didn't know the extent of it yourself at the time. Uh, as you said, uh, the medics uh, got to you, and uh, you eventually got out and uh, were uh, taken to a field hospital and uh, finally uh, made your way back to the United States. Uh, there was a period of time there, uh, and and I want to spend a little bit of time here on it about because this brings your parents into the picture, your sister into the picture, your first wife into the picture. And let me just say here that one of the things that I found very interesting about the book is the way it's formatted in that they tell in their own words what their reaction was to certain events at certain times. And uh, the notification comes back, uh, and your father, I guess, is the first person to get a telegram and... uh, he knows immediately that it has to do with you because he doesn't get telegrams addressed to Colonel Clark any longer. And uh, why did you decide to bring these people into the book in that way? Was that your idea? Was that yeah. your editor's idea? What? No, it was always my own idea. My my editor for this publication, Zenith Press in St. Paul, Minnesota, did not get into this picture until a year ago. I began writing these stories uh, right after the war in, in social meetings with my friends and beginning in the early 70s uh, after I went to graduate school and started my, my, my job. Um, 
I would begin telling them stories about the covert operations, about the Montagnards, about special forces. They said, oh, these are very interesting, Alan. You ought to write them up and do a book someday. Well, I began to be flattered enough that I continued to uh, add to the stories, and I had some political involvement and all. But but those letters I found, um, you know, they had been sent to me. And and then I also asked them in the early 70s to, I said, you know, I think I may begin writing this story. So I need your firsthand recollections now while it's still fresh on your mind. So I began to collect those anecdotes and, and knew that I wanted to hear what they had to say. So I began to put those together as I began to live the story of my life and add new chapters. Well, it makes for a very interesting well, uh, book and moves it along in a very interesting fashion. Thank you. When you got back, uh, how long was it before you uh, understood the extent of your injuries and uh, what was your frame of mind at that time? Well, I, I was wounded on Saturday morning, and Sunday night I woke up. I mean, I'm under heavy morphine. I have intravenous in both arms, but I, I, I had no toes under the sheet on the left side. So I knew very quickly that the left leg was gone. The right leg was in a uh, hip cast, you know, all the way from my hip all the way down to my toes. My right toes were all black and blue, but I could see them. And so I knew very quickly that I'd obviously had a very severe injury. But I was so drugged out that in a state of euphoria, you know, that, that and so close to the wound and just off the battlefield at the hospital in Pleiku that you don't recognize or realize the impact of what's happened to you. You slowly grasp it as you as you get further away from it. I was able to come back to the United States very quickly. And at Brook General Hospital, I'd been back three days when, after a week off the battlefield. In other words, 10 days after the wound, they took my right leg off. And it was very, very painful for me. The morphine only was, was I would give it a shot of morphine only every three hours. And I mean, it started to wear off at about the two hour mark. And I mean, you just beg the nurses and I'd say, three hours. Uh, Captain, you wait for your three hours, period, you know. So it was really brutal. And I began to have, um, you know, I began to have nightmares very quickly. You know, we had a, um, on the July 4th down there, they had some fireworks display. And, you know, I thought we came under attack down at Brook General Hospital. That began, that's, those are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, the triggers from the battlefield and the war and the wounds and so forth begin to bother us. So I, I began an eight-month period there of a total 15-month period where I had to start seeing a psychiatrist. And, uh, you know, my family was involved, and especially my first wife, Jackie, was involved to, to help me begin to build my confidence, which, which, which was not building during those eight months at all. Well, I'm sure of that, but you also had, uh, which brings us to a contemporary uh, uh, point, as a matter of fact, about the controversy of Walter Reed. Uh, uh, you also had some very uh, excellent and uh, loving uh, care from uh, the staff at Brook. Yes, I did. I have no complaints. I mean, if there was bad medical care or not the best, I don't know anything about it. Uh, our doctors and our nurses and our staff people worked very, very hard there in a dedicated fashion. Uh, I had no complaints. And I really think that much of this is overblown at Walter Reed and the Veterans Hospital today. I, I believe that the medical care per se is extraordinary in the Army hospitals and the Naval and the Naval Medical Centers. They, the people are dedicated, and this was an off-the-post type of a place that we were responsible for, the Army was responsible for, but it was an administrative issue that has a lot to do with budget and with maintenance and with having, you know, a Sergeant E-7 inspect that building every day, and that was his assignment. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. The articles uh, that the Post uh, originally uh, ran uh, concentrated only on the negatives at one place, and uh, you wouldn't know that there was some of the best medical care in the world being provided to Walter Reed. Exactly. And I, I know people personally who are there who are receiving it. So, uh 
We're going to get you, uh, when we come back after this break, uh, back into uh, civilian mode, if you will, and uh, learn about uh, what happened to you after uh, your uh, military career, and there's a whole lot to talk about, and uh, then get to how you healed not just your body but your soul. And we'll be back with uh, Alan Clark, author of Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior, in a moment after this break. World War II. A German news agency said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. Korea. The armed invasion of the Republic of Korea by armed forces from northern Korea constituted a breach of the peace. Vietnam. The curfew is in effect for the Saigon Cholon Jiazin area. The Gulf War. The skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. Bright flashes going off all over the sky. A special thanks to veterans everywhere from the Radio America Network. Heavy fighting is still raging. 3,639 wounded. Red light, green light, and out, out. Get Gentlemen, out. this is the real thing. The brutal death march of baton. Germany calling. Germany calling. Right in the purest space. You're listening to Veterans Chronicles, presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network. Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Gene Pell, talking this week with Alan Clark, the author of Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. Uh, Alan, uh, we've got you uh, in the hospital. You're undergoing all kinds of uh, physical and otherwise rehab. Uh, but the psychological and psychiatric aspects of recovery are something I'd like to get into and have you talk about a little bit. Well, uh, as I mentioned to you that things were going relatively well, I had to begin building my confidence. I had bone grafts, skin grafts. Uh, you know, they kept picking out little pieces of shrapnel from my leg. And it's a very painful process because they don't dope you up for that. And they go in and they debride you, as it's called, and pull out the little pieces down at the bottom where you have your open wounds till they close them off, and then you begin walking on legs. I began to be very scared. I began to be very, very worried about walking, having children. What was I going to do with the rest of my life? I mean, you know, uh, here I was. I had my 30-year career planned out, and everything was was messed up. I was going to be divorcing, and that was bad enough, but then to not have legs, to be four foot six, and to be scared. I went without sleep for four days, and I promise you anybody will crack with four days without sleep. I did, and I was very aggressive, and I was very angry. I was bitter, and I had to go to a closed psychiatric ward for 14 weeks at Brook General Hospital. Horrible time of my life. Individual psychotherapy, lots of pills, group therapy, and everything till I eventually worked my way out of there. And then about three months after that, I was able to leave the Army. But I was I was angry at God. I was angry at the world. I was angry at the Army. And I mean, just, just angry that my life had taken such a topsy-turvy turn, and that I was hurt so badly, you know, mentally, emotionally, and physically, and spiritually. Well, spiritually, let's talk about that a minute, because this is a predominant theme in your book, it seems to me, is the role that uh, your religion and your faith uh, has played in uh, not only your recovery, but your entire life, because you're very much dedicated to uh, promulgating the message right now yourself. Uh, but you didn't come to this uh, early, well, you know, uh, in, in my faith as a Christian, um, 
there is a, there are plateaus of your faith and your growing and your building, just like in the career fields that you have with more education and so forth. I, I believed in Jesus Christ as Savior as a teenager. I was very active in a church in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, but I really hadn't uh, started that faith walk that I call where Jesus became Lord of my life. And that really didn't start until age 31. You know, about the time that I stopped my psychotherapy, I had pills and saw a psychiatrist till age 73. Almost concurrently with the time when I went to a, a service and realized and grasped the, the, the ultimate eternal struggle as defined by a sermon that I heard from Pastor Gene Getz, the ultimate eternal struggle uh, of the war of the world is good versus evil, God versus the devil. And I'd been in a little bitty skirmish out there with freedom in, in, the, in man's world, but I, I really wasn't in the larger battle, uh, war of the world and war of all time since recorded history from the Garden, Garden of Eden. And and that's when I began to get into the Bible, get into my prayers, learning the power of prayer, how God answers prayer, not always the way we want to, but the way he wants us by his will. And I began to progress in my faith in the 70s and into the 80s and into now and, and was able to get away from the elements and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, the majority of them, by that faith walk. And, uh, you know, today... Uh, I, you know, am working very hard in, in, in minist- lay ministry and programs and, and, and speeches and so forth to talk about what happened to me and my healing and my faith walk and to be able to, to tell people about that so they can have the opportunity to heal the way I did. Mm-hmm. Well, prior to be, uh, that walk beginning in earnest, uh, you had a few other journeys as well. You uh, dabbled in politics and then uh, you served in uh, Washington. Uh, and uh, you had your eyes opened about the way politics works, uh, as I recall from reading your book, right? That's true. Well, I I think an interesting uh, aspect of my history, and it relates to politics of someone that ran for president twice, is Ross Perot, who's uh, written the foreword for my book, a wonderful foreword. I had gone to work for him in 1970, and I had another – I worked very hard. I was dedicated. I was his personal financial assistant, had a lot of responsibility very quickly. Uh, I Felt that I did, and I cracked again in 1970 when I was working for him. Well, it was too much too soon. Yes, the, the psychiatrist said, "Go to an easy job." So what do I do? I go to work for the you know the most well known entrepreneur in the country at the time, and very well known. <laughs> Eventually, ran for office as I indicated. Uh, so that didn't work. So I went to work at a bank where they you know basically closed everything down by about five o'clock, and was there, but began to get involved in politics, and um, it was kind of another way for me to express myself and do service to my fellow uh, people in the country as a citizen. I couldn't do it in the military, but so I began to do it in politics. And, you know, I I became um, a special assistant for administration to Texas Governor Bill Clements, who was elected in 1978, the first Republican in in, uh, since Reconstruction in Texas, and uh, was on his staff for two and a half years, and then uh, had an abortive stay up here as President Reagan's selectee to be the number two man at the Veterans Administration before it became a cabinet. And I had a, a political buzzsaw with the number one person there and didn't, didn't really want to do well, that. Well, let me just interrupt you to say that the, one of the things I admired most about the book was the fact that you, uh, in effect, told him to shove it because oh, uh, you uh, 
realized early on that uh, it was not going to be a match, it was not going to be a fit, and the person who took the job discovered that after a few months. Yes. Well, the, the one that replaced me was Chuck Hagel, who's right. now United States Senator. Right. He, he lasted six months, and the number three man had the same problem for a short period of time, Ev Alvarez, who's been interviewed on your program and yep. has become a, a friend of mine through the years. So uh, I, I pegged this man who was picked and nominated and confirmed at the time, but he didn't last very long. He lasted 17 months. Uh, but I learned a lot from that. And um, <clears throat> I. But you eventually did go back to the department and serve in a high-level yes, position. Yes, yes, I did. I came back in 89. But I had another little detour in politics. Uh, when I came back, I went to work for um, an oil man in Texas in 81 when that the opportunity appeared in work, and uh, I had a very interesting lunch with the current president out in Midland, Texas, in the oil business. And then um, I ran for uh, right after I left his office, Governor Clements in nineteen June nineteen eighty. Uh, Two called me to run for state treasurer against Ann Richards, which was an interesting race, to say the least. <laughs> I was a late admittee to that race, interesting case, but uh, got out of that, came to work for President George H.W. Bush, and I was an assistant secretary at the Department of Veterans Affairs and eventually ran the uh, cemetery system. Well, that must have been an interesting assignment. Both of them were just fascinating jobs. To be able to come to Washington and uh, be at the Department of Veterans Affairs and <clears throat> to be working um, as an Assistant Secretary of Veterans Liaison and Program Coordination, I was able to be the interface between the Secretary and all the major veterans organizations. And I traveled a lot. I met some wonderful heroes and great men and women that have served this country, the families that have supported the men and women that have served this country. And it was an absolutely fantastic opportunity and then we had 115 cemeteries and i traveled the country visited in in 18 months 85 of those 115 cemeteries and met our people and and that was probably one of the best jobs i'll ever have in my life it was a privilege and to have that responsibility with the government two things i want to get to we talked about or you've mentioned post-traumatic stress problems at the time when you were Experiencing the first symptoms of this, it was not even a term, uh, almost, that yeah. appeared anywhere. Yeah. And uh, there was no recognition of uh, the fact that this was uh, a, an inevitable uh, follow-on uh, after going through what kinds of war experiences some people did. Um, how do you feel about that now? Well, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder has an interesting history. Civil War is called condition of the heart. World War One, it was called uh, battle shock. Uh, World War Two, it began to be battle fatigue in Korean War. Uh, when we first got back, it was just kind of like old-timey definitions and terms to it. Until 1980, when they set up the vet centers, did they really start to run about that time? Did they really begin to understand that, that people coming back from war are not only physically hurt, but they're also mentally and emotionally and spiritually hurt? And that began to be termed by the psychiatrists, I guess, the medical fraternity in the country, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. So we veterans from Vietnam, uh, you know, sometimes carry that with a with a degree of pride, uh, which, you know, is kind of a, a mixed emotion, but we, we have it, and, and really people from World War II now define it as that, but but all periods of warfare have it, and uh, I have done extensive study on this, and I have had it myself, I have been healed from the majority of the symptoms, and I have a, a, a lay ministry website called Combat Faith that I have, have done extensive work on going back to all wars and anecdotes from all the wars on there, my own PTSD story, and I have a segment there which is called the Symptoms of Post-Traumatic Stress 
stress disorder. The major issues and elements that we reflect as combat veterans and, and how they impact us and how they impact their families. So it's a site that people, sh- that if they have somebody they think has it or they, they think they have it themselves as a warrior, to go to it and try to get some help and relief from the spiritual and faith-based angle. Because the pills that are thrown at us and the, and the, the group therapy and the psychotherapy can only take you so far. The real ultimate comfort and relief from all of this, although you can get it from those sources, the way that it's worked for me is through my faith in the Lord Jesus. And I have put what I've learned on there and what I hope can help others at that CombatFaith.com website. Why do you think there are still people out there trying to debunk this whole business? Well, uh, I think that, that part of it is they have no earthly idea what it is to be under fire in combat. They have no earthly idea what it is to a medic who has the guilt complex because he couldn't save everybody. I have talked to hundreds, dozens if not hundreds of veterans through the years. And so the combat medic, having saved lives, doesn't look at it that he saved those lives. He feels guilty those he didn't save. The, the combat um, person there, the company commander that lost his radio operator right next to him from a sniper, he has the fear from that. He has the anguish and the memories of those things. The people in combat that come under an ambush attack. And that's something only on the ground that the Marines and the Navy, I mean the Navy corpsmen and the Marines and the Army suffer. The people that are flying over uh, may have some a certain amount of stressors. And I understand, you know, getting fired on and all that and on the ships and all, but there's nothing like that ground combat in close proximity to the enemy and having the, 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 the weapons being fired very nearby and the, the grenades going off and the mortar rounds coming off and the, the stressors of that. There's nothing like that. Unless you've been there and done that, you can't make a judgment on it, that it's not a real and positive thing. It's a real and positive thing. I know it from the people I've talked to. Mm-hmm. In addition to the website you mentioned a minute ago, uh, what other things are you doing with this new uh, venture of yours? Well, my combat faith ministry, the, the, the book is really a part of my ministry. Uh, having the book out there telling the story, the wounded soldier is a story about my war story. The healing warrior is about me being a warrior in the spiritual arena, trying to help others heal. Well, let and, me ask you about that. Yeah. Pardon me. because. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised that the title wasn't juxtaposed, yeah. uh, that it might well have been yeah. a wounded warrior healing soldier. Yeah, Why? well, well I, I don't pretend to be a warrior. I mean, I was an mil- Army intelligence uh, uh, service officer considered military intelligence today. I was not an infantryman. I mean, I went out uh, under in harm's way, to say the least, in a special forces camp and what I did. But I don't consider myself a warrior like these people that are airborne ranger, paratroopers, special operations, infantry in the ground, and so forth. I was a staff officer that happened to get caught in a mortar attack. Uh, so the wounded soldier is my being wounded, but I'm healed, basically. I mean, I walk on these artificial legs, and I've gotten taller uh, on my legs. And I tell that story in the book, you know, going from five foot eight to six foot two. Uh, so I've healed medically. Uh, I will always have a certain element of me that's not totally healed, but I've done a pretty good job of restoring myself and, and coming back. And uh, the healing warriors to be a warrior in the spiritual arena to help my fellow real warriors heal from the battles of the battlefield. When I interrupted you, you were talking about 
how, in addition to the book, you yes, are yes, moving I'm, this yes, yes. forward. Well, the book, you know, um, I have a segment in there toward the end called Battle Plan for Victory, which is a way that anybody, not just veterans, can look at that and say, oh, yeah, it would help straighten my life out if I forgave others, if I wasn't bitter, if I wasn't angry, if I got my relationship straight, if I forgave myself for mistakes. Because the major L- issues on post-traumatic stress disorder are we made mistakes, other people made mistakes, we have to forgive them. Same thing in life. It drives us in life, whether we're veterans or not, into substance abuse and into multiple marriages. So this is a way to help heal. I also do a lot of public speaking. Uh, I go to churches. I go to seminars. I go to retreats. I go to, like I just came back from the military ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ and gave a a, a presentation on my post-traumatic stress disorder and how I've been healed. So the combination of the book, the website, and my own personal speaking engagements are, 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 are the essence of what reflects me today as a healing warrior in the spiritual arena. So as you look back on it, do you have any regret that you, uh, from the age eight, wanted to go to West Point? No, I, I was interviewed the other day for a television program that's going to be coming up on July 4th, and I said at the end, I am very proud to be a soldier of the United States of America. Well, thank you for your service, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for what you continue to do for the men and women who are still serving. It's a privilege to help my fellow veterans and live my life again. We've been talking with Alan Clark, the author of Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior. And we'll return with our weekly World War II Chronicles and our salute to an American military hero. To learn more about this program or the American Veterans Center, call 202-777-7272 or log on to AmericanVeteransCenter.org. Veterans Chronicles is presented by the American Veterans Center, an educational foundation dedicated toward preserving the legacy of America's servicemen and servicewomen of all generations. The center is home to two organizations, the World War II Veterans Committee, and the National Vietnam Veterans Committee, each working to tell the stories of their respective veterans. In addition to this program, the American Veterans Center is also the primary sponsor of the National Memorial Day Parade, held annually in Washington, D.C. For more information on the American Veterans Center and its programs, visit the center's website at www.americanveteranscenter.com. Or call 703-302-1012. Welcome to Profiles in Valor, stories of decorated men and women serving in today's military. Our guest today is Specialist David R. Hutchinson, United States Army Reserve. On June 6, 2009, the 65th anniversary of D-Day, Specialist Hutchinson became only the fifth Army Reserve soldier to receive the Silver Star. His actions in Afghanistan on May 21, 2008, were directly responsible for saving the lives of 16 of his fellow soldiers. Specialist Hutchinson, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell us a bit, if you could, about your job with the 420th Engineer Brigade while deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, When exactly did you begin your deployment? Uh, I began deployment the same, the same month the incident happened, so it was May of 2008. I was in, I was only actually in country for for five days when this happened. So five. I wasn't, I wasn't in country very long. 
five days after you began there, and that's that's when the action happens. You didn't have a whole lot of time to get acclimated to Afghanistan then. <laughs> no, not really. No. Well, well uh, t- if, if you could then take us your fifth day in, take us back to the morning of uh, May 21st, 2008, and um, uh, tell us a little bit about what happened. Okay. Uh, I was a member of a, uh, a security detail. Uh, 16 or 17 members in the security detail. We were uh, going out to basically get acquainted with our surroundings. Uh, there were a couple fobs that we were we were going to be traveling to in the future, so we wanted to get get acquainted with the with the roads and what it was like to travel on those roads. Uh, it was only supposed to be a, a three hour convoy, three hours out and then three hours back. Uh, we were about an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes into the convoy when we came into a a, a small a small mountain pass or valley. And about the time all four trucks got into that small pass is when the the first gun truck started started opening up fire with his 50 cal machine gun. At that point, I couldn't see what was going on. Like I just hear the the front truck firing. It's, it wasn't three or four seconds later when uh, I saw several insurgents pop up on the or on the on the ridge to my basically in front of me, but to the right of the convoy. Uh, they immediately started opening fire on all the trucks with machine guns, uh, AK-47s, rocket propel grenades. And we, two about two and a half, three minutes into the, into the firefight, our truck was finally struck by two RPGs. Uh, those RPGs, uh, in, the blast knocked me out of my turret and laid me flat inside the truck. At that point, it left me numb from my waist down. So the uh, the, the uh, fighters I mean, they were there they were ready for you uh, obviously um, uh, was this your first engagement in Afghanistan? Yes, it was first engagement in Afghanistan. And, and it w- was uh, uh, w- was this t- expected around where you were at, or did this come as a as a complete surprise? Uh, it was definitely a complete surprise. Uh, the area we were in was, uh, from what we were told, was was pretty calm for the past twelve months. So. We weren't expecting we weren't expecting anything, but I mean we were expecting, but we weren't expecting anything. Right, right. I understand. Uh, so you're in the third gun truck, uh, manning uh, the MK19, um, and, and the attackers uh, uh, taking the initiative uh, came after you. When they when they came out of their their uh, protected positions and 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 came out of the open, uh, how did you really re- react to that? Uh, it was very it was very surprising to me that they were uh they were very determined uh to, for them to come out from i mean it wasn't just i wasn't just seeing muzzle flashes I could make out entire torsos from the waist up from where they were at it was very surprising to me that they were that that determined to uh take out our convoy and so you uh you began uh uh taking advantage of the situation didn't you and began r- really firing at their uh uh, their strongest position, correct? Correct. And uh, uh, from from what I understand, that that you were uh, so effective uh, with your fire that they really turned their attention pretty much squarely on you, right? Yep, yep, that's correct. And uh, uh, I, I read that uh, members of your unit later counted over a hundred bullet strikes on your turret. Yep, uh, well over a hundred, and then they. Uh, there were a couple that were actually inside the turret with me too. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I, I would imagine that would be a. Uh, what was going on through your minds, if 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 anything, or were you just pretty much concentrated on doing your job? 
I was I was completely concentrated on doing my job. I wasn't even registering the 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 bolt, the bolt noises when they were hitting the turret or the glass when glass would spider web. I, none of that was registering in my head. I was just so focused on uh, destroying that machine gun nest and then other other positions. That's that's uh, that's incredible. It really reminds me of uh, of Paul Ray Smith's story. I mean, very very similar kind of story. So you were wounded uh, eventually when an RPG um, hit your vehicle, correct? Correct. Well, again, uh, I want to thank you again for being with us today, uh, Specialist David R. Hutchinson, United States Army Reserve, uh, only the fifth reservist to receive the Silver Star. Um, thank you for your service. All right. Thank you for having me again. Profiles in Valor is produced by the American Veterans Center and Radio America. To hear more profiles, subscribe on iTunes or visit www.americanveteranscenter.org. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.